Welcome to Working From The Inside Out with Finesse Equestrian and your host, Ali O'Brien. Join us as we unpack the equestrian dream, talking to incredible riders, equine experts, and a few of our own tips too. Inside Out. Today, I am really, really excited to have Russell Higgins here with me, well, at least over the internet anyway, and uh, to be having a bit of a chat. We've just managed to work out the technical side of things, and we are ready to rock and roll. So, Russell Higgins is an amazing trainer here in New Zealand, and I think very well known for his beautiful Liberty acts, um, especially at... Equitana and Equidays, and also his really great teaching. And I know that um, you travel a bit overseas as well, Russell. So thank you for being here today. And um, I'd love it maybe if you can give us a bit of um, your background and what you do and, and a bit of your journey. Well, thank you, Ali, for having me here. Um, I didn't expect to be speaking to a, a device, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> I've you know, got this phobia about uh, Terminator ever since I watched it way back when, so I'll do my best here. Um, <laughs> so my background, uh, I guess, I, I grew up on a, a farm, on a farm uh, called Brumby Farm in the Bay of Islands. And as the name suggests, we had horses. My parents had the first ever horse trekking business in the Bay of Islands, which they stocked with wild horses. Uh, which my father would train and, and try to get to a point where they could use them for the, the trekking business, hence the name Rumby Farm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So as a kid, I grew up like a lot of New Zealand kids, uh, no saddle. Uh, you get around bareback and, you know, you have to fall off 300 times to be considered a good rider. So it was that type of environment, that type of era that I, that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, so horses were always part of my life and I was – you know, I, I, I just loved them. <laughs> I, just, mm-hmm. I wasn't particularly better than anybody else, but I just, just loved being around horses. So, mm-hmm. so that was a big part of my life. And then uh, to fast forward things a little bit, uh, at the end of my schooling, I got very serious about life. And, and situations dictated I did come about for myself there a bit. And mm-hmm. I moved to Auckland and I got a real job. Uh, I bought a house when I was 19 paid it off when I was 24, Hmm. um, got pretty serious about life, but I wasn't happy. You know, I was busy. I was busy. I was doing things. I had other interests, but I wasn't happy. And and, uh, I realized it was because I just wanted to have a life with horses. Mm -hmm. And that's why I I wasn't really happy. So I began to take that back and thought, how can I change my life? So at that point, I had um, a successful career in a sensible job, mm-hmm. sort of things your parents would be very happy about. Um, <laughs> yeah. I had a house in, in Auckland and I was doing well. Uh, so obviously I had to give all that up. And uh, <laughs> I, I changed things. And in my 20s, I became an adult student at the Waikato Polytech in Hamilton. Wow. And I went to do uh, what's officially called the National Certificate in Equine Studies Level Sports, Level 4 Sports Horse Strength. Uh, which is kind of just a fancy way of saying I was doing a horse course. Um, I figured that would be a starting point. I wanted to get back into horses. I had no real formal education. I was just a guy from a farm that rode and thrown himself over a few jumps here and there. Mm. Uh, a few ribbon days. I, I didn't know really how that would work. And it was just, I, 
I had no real end in mind other than I just wanted to be around horses. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and it was during that process, and we're talking back in the 90s now, so that does make me sound really dirt, but <laughs> um, we're talking back in the 90s. I, I met somebody who was doing some weird stuff with horses, and they just happened to be on one of these other courses at the Polytech. And, and I went over and I spoke to them because they, they looked a bit odd and they were doing things that I couldn't do. Mm. And they said something about this Papinelli course they'd been on and games and respect, and I kind of didn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, there was a mm-hmm. course coming up, and it turns out it's what a Pirelli course. <laughs> it's a good natural horsemanship, whatever that was. Yeah. So I, um, I signed up to this course. Now, it was up in uh, Auckland. I was down in Hamilton. I didn't take a horse. I wasn't going to get that involved. But yeah. I took a chair mm-hmm. and I went and I, for two days, I watched somebody doing things with horses that I couldn't do. Mm. And I listened to them explaining why things would work and why things wouldn't work. And then like some sort of fortune teller, he would say, well, if we do this, this will happen. And then he'd do it and it happened. Mm-hmm. And I was mesmerized. Mm. Um, and uh, in those days, you know, it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't the, the internet influence and, and that sort of thing. There wasn't such a marketing influence over it. But I remember on the second day going into the clubhouse there and um, they had some merchandise set up, which I think was two videos and a book. Mm. Uh, and the book, I looked at the book and the book said Natural Horsemanship by Pat Perel. It was actually the book that came out in 1991 where he coined the phrase Natural right. Horsemanship. Oh, okay. Uh, which is, uh, you know, he coined that phrase back in the 80s, but come the release of that book, it just became kind of a household name in the equine industry anyway. It kind of just went like wildfire. Mm. So that, that was kind of the book that did it. And I looked at that book, and on the front cover there, there was a picture of this skinny bloke with a small moustache riding a, what seemed like a little horse. Mm. No saddle, no bridle. Which, mm. you know, that's the sort of thing in that time would catch your attention. Yeah. Um, at the top of it, it said Western Horseman. And I looked at him and went, oh, that's a shame. I don't do Western. And that was the end of my involvement with natural horsemanship and my involvement with, uh, with Prelly. Huh. And it wasn't until like, and I carried on doing what I was doing um, at, at the, the course at the Polytech. And it wasn't until about two months later I met somebody and, and we were chatting a little bit about different things. As you mentioned, uh, she'd been on one of these courses. And I mentioned my experience, and she enlightened me and made me realize that um, Western Horseman was a book publication house. (laughs) And they published books on racing legends, building barns, ferrier work, English work. Yeah, they they were just a publication house. So I had literally judged the book by its cover and remember I don't do that. That's so Um, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I obviously had some some, uh, blinkers on there. So... So I thought, right, well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a look. I'll give it a look. And I traveled to go and spectate another course, and I was stunned that I saw a lady there by the name of Kate Gwynn. Mm. And Kate was five foot tall. She came over from Australia to teach this course. In fact, as far as I know, she still is only five foot tall. <laughs> uh, she came over from Australia to teach this course. She was one of Pirelli's highly rated instructors. Um, and she was so effective with the horses. Mm. And my background, growing up where I did, the trainers were all big men. They were all strong men, athletic men, men that could 
handle of a horse that kind of jumped around a bit. And, and that was my background. Mm. It wasn't um, very touchy-feely, let's just say that. Yeah. It was more of a practical application of let's get it done mm-hmm. uh, type of background. So to see a, a very slight woman of five foot tall being totally effective with horses, I realized I knew so little. Yeah, just it was just amazing to me. So, um, and it turns out Kate was a lovely person, also. And mm. I chatted with her and communicated with her after that. And I, I um, developed the opportunity to go over and spend some time with her. So, I ended up in 1998 moving to Australia. Wow, uh, and I spent three months with her. Her and her husband Owen had a cattle property where they did all their stock work from on horseback. Mm. Um, and I became a Pirelli student at that time. At that time, it was the only program around that could give you a sequence for learning. Mm. So I, I did that, and I went over there, and I'd achieved their introductory level, their level one here in New Zealand, and I was over there. They gave me a horse to use, so I studied for level two, as you know, grade two there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was working on their property, and – the work they gave me, there was enough time for horses. I had pretty much all the time I wanted. I didn't really want to do anything else, so I had pretty much all the time I wanted. I only worked about 20, 30 hours a week, so it wasn't really a, a stressful time. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, I, go, I had the opportunity to go mustering with them and do the cow working with them and, and things like that. So there was another avenue there that opened up experiences I hadn't had before. Mm. Uh, but I had absolutely zero plan. I had successfully completed my studies at the Polytech and had the certificate, but it didn't open a lot of doors. Um, So I didn't have much of a plan. Again, I was just in this situation where a few months earlier I had no idea I'd end up being in Australia, but here I was, I was in Australia. Um, I I knew the guy who was on that cover of that book. He obviously knew more than I did. I'd seen a video Actually, there were five videos. It was called the, the Horsemanship Course or the Horseman's Course, actually. Mm. And I'd watched them over and over and over and over and over and over again. I just about worn them out. <laughs> um, and, and in there, you know, people doing things I couldn't do. That was pretty much bottom line. Mm. And uh, that, that was it. And I, that was all, all I had. So I thought, well, if I go over there, they live in Colorado. Maybe I just go over there. So I wrote to them, and I don't know if you, you remember that, you're a little younger than me, but there was this time when you'd get a pen and some paper <laughs> and you'd write words on it, put it in an envelope and, and post it through a system called the Postal Service. And, uh, <laughs> and have to wait to get a reply. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, usually your, your newborn was, was uh, you know, teething at that point. But that was the that was the deal, and I wrote wrote a letter, and I wrote off there, and I never did hear a reply. And that was prior to going to Australia. So a lot happened while I was in Australia. I had a lot of good opportunities. I did things I otherwise would not have done before. Mm. Um, so it was a good opportunity, but it was coming to an end. So towards the end, I, what do I do? What do I do from here? I know what I want to do. What do I do? Try and get to Colorado. To get to Colorado was for as a paying student it was horrendously expensive. Yes. Um, I kind of had my mind on that I would do it anyway and just see where that leads because this is really – this is the only thing that I really desperately wanted to do. Yeah. So, so I was good at what I did before this, but this I wanted to do. I desperately wanted to do it. So at the time, is how do you do it? I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, 
in New Zealand, they were advertising for men that could ride for a uh, there was some sort of movie trilogy they were filming or something like that, so a lot of some sort of jewelry movie or something. But, right. um, anyway, they were they were doing this thing, this big trilogy. They wanted men that could ride, and I thought, oh, you know, I could I could do that. I could go and be a movie star. <laughs> That'd be good. All I need is talent and looks. If it wasn't for that, I would have been. But uh, the and the other opportunity that came up ten days before I left their place in New South Wales, that probably New South Wales called Braidwood. Um, I got a phone call from a guy claiming to be the ranch manager at the Pirelli International Study Centre. Oh, no he way. Worked. He said, we've heard about you and we'd like you to come over and be a working student. Aww. And I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, we kind of want you soonish. I said, well, I just need to go back to New Zealand for a little bit. Um, but okay, so it, it ended up... I left there 10 days later, left Australia, went back to New Zealand. I was, I was back in New Zealand for six days, and then I flew out to Colorado. Mm. Um, so I arrived in Colorado in April, and if you've ever been in that part of the world that time of the year, it's not real warm. Yeah. Uh, it was a shock to me, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> I was ill-prepared. Oh, no. Ill-prepared. I had a bag with my little English saddle in it, and, uh, and a helmet that never got used, and uh, you know all the inappropriate clothing. <laughs> yeah. So the deal was, with, it turns out, when they said working student, what they meant was working student. Like actually working. <laughs> yeah. So they, they put me to work pretty quick, and um, and away I went. And I met this this bloke who uh, who was on the cover of that that book I saw and, and those videos I saw, and and uh, he wasn't quite as small as I thought he was. Uh, ah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we kind of worked alongside him a bit. And, but I was a work issue. So, so for six months, we worked. And it was it was pretty hard. I, was, I went over there for six months. Um, actually, it's not quite true. I, was, I went over six months. I was there for four and a half months mm-hmm. before things changed for me. Um, and at that time, we, we were told that we would have some time off. But it was very hard to get because, you know, it was a very busy property. It was a student-based property. So during the summer, a lot of courses, a lot of things happened. Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't getting a lot of horse time in the beginning. Mm. So I found a way to get horse time. Uh, I, I volunteered to be their farrier. I shot a horse <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and I volunteered to be their farrier. And they, they quite happily allowed me to do that because, well, the plumbing I was doing wasn't working. <laughs> so he took me off of that task. Oh, funny. So the ranch manager, who had been a ferry since he was 14, yeah. um, had put a lot of effort into helping me learn to shoe horses. Oh, good. And after a little while of doing this, I was so bad at it, he said, what else would you like to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the at least I was around horses at that time. It wasn't wasn't uh, fixing fences and things. So at least yeah. I was doing that. But um, uh, one one unique aspect of the ranch is everything was horse drawn. So there were no, there were no tractors or slashes or anything like this. There was uh, there were pickups, but there were no motorbikes, quad bikes, tractors. Wow. They had a team of horses. So wow. a team of horses every morning delivered all the grain and all the meal and all the hay wow. and spread the manure midday and carried the arenas and picked up the rubbish bins and delivered the bags to the cabins. And they did all that with a horse-drawn vehicle. Incredible. So I said, well, I, 
would quite like to be a teamster. They said, have you driven before? I said, well, no, but it can't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> Easier than the uh, area work anyway. <laughs> so, so I became the Teamsters assistant. So basically I logged sacks of grain and various things and loaded the wagons. And, and I was allowed to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go catch the team, bring the team in, uh, groom the team, harness the team. Now, you say harness the team like that's easy. That's actually pretty hard. I can imagine. But, it, it took me seven months con- continuously before I could put the harnesses on in one go. Huh. Uh, they, they were heavy, proper working harnesses with big, heavy traces. They were the Collar and Haim system. Wow. Um, but I got a bit of practice doing that. So that was me. So I'd have all that ready and, and uh, ready for the teamster. And he'd come just at the break of dawn, you know. Um as I got a little better, I was allowed to hook them onto the wagon on my own and this will then take the reins here and there. And eventually, you know, I got to drive a little under supervision and what do you know, it turns out I wasn't too bad at that. <laughs> so the guy who was the teamster, he didn't enjoy it. It was a lot of work and it was a lot of extra work and you had to work longer hours. So he didn't enjoy it. So as soon as he could hand it off to me, that was it. I became the full-time teamster huh. at the ranch. So I would have to get up earlier than everybody. Um, and I'd get the team in, get them all ready, get them harnessed up. And before breakfast, we will have loaded that wagon twice, taken all the grain and all the stores for the day up to the feed uh, area, the feed room there, where uh, the students would then come and get their grain and the various things, and they'd, they'd take it from there. And then before breakfast, we'll have that team, we'd hook them up to uh, a hitching rail, we'd go in, we'd eat, we'd come out, we'd swap the, the wagon for a forecart, which would then hook up to the manure spreader, we'd spread the manure. Uh, every now and again, we'd have to put a different implement on. We'd, we'd do all the topping of the grass. Um, every weekend, we're either doing check-ins or check-outs, which meant delivering bags to cabins or retrieving bags from cabins with right. the team. Powering, emptying the, the trash cans, this type of thing. So, hmm. And I loved it. And I loved it. And it took a long while, but I eventually became not too bad at it. Wow. Uh, and after four and a half months, I did a three-week course with students, alongside students. Mm-hmm. And uh, funnily enough, I paid to do this course uh, privately, prior to know, knowing that I was going to Colorado. Hmm. So I did that alongside students, but I had to work in the morning before breakfast, get up a bit earlier even still to work, uh, and then work at lunchtime and then work afterwards. <laughs> and the whole time I was there doing all this, I had a horse that I was supposed to develop, but I had no time to develop it. So I became very good at riding at night. Uh-huh. And so people, I wasn't very sociable. Uh, that was kind of my reputation. I wasn't a very social person mm. um, because I didn't really eat with anybody. You, you wouldn't <laughs> have the time to. <laughs> so I usually had uh, cereal for breakfast and cereal for dinner, dinner usually about 11 o'clock. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and I'd ride in the dark and – and it was getting me somewhere with my horse. It was also getting me pretty tired. But, but after doing the three-week course with Pat, um, the ranch manager came to me and he said, Pat would like to meet with you. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll meet Pat. It's okay. And uh, so we did that. We, had, we went out. Uh, we didn't often go out too, too much with Pat, but we went out to a restaurant. We bought lunch and Mexican restaurant. Mm. And he said, um, how would you like to stay for another year and be an apprentice? Hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, sounds all right. Mm-hmm. He said, okay, will you just write down what you'd need in order to make that happen and give it to the ranch management and you, you'd be with me for another year. Wow. And I said, okay, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, it, it was only six weeks before I was due to leave anyway, so I, again, didn't know what I was going to do. I was at that point. So it's just one of those pivotal points in your life yes. where you have to make a decision that's going to change the course of your life. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I became one of his apprentices, and I stayed on through a winter. I thought it was cold coming in autumn. <laughs> I learned so much uh, in the snow and the ice <laughs> again through that winter. Um, Teach you to be brave. Again, <laughs> again, had experiences I otherwise would not have had. So mm. I, I've told people in the past that, Spending a year with Pat, it's a bit like dog years compared to human years. You know, they say there's seven dog years to a human year. Yeah. Well, with Pat, it's about seven years of working outside <laughs> of that ranch was equivalent to one year working in the ranch. Yeah. So as an apprentice, we had a string of six horses ranging from hasn't been started to a couple that have just been started that were preparing for sale for a French colleague of his to uh, what we what we called performance horses, which was the highest level horse we had at the time. Mm. So we had a range of six horses, and I kept up my driving because basically nobody else wanted to do that. <laughs> so I drove. Um, so that was, to me, a little bit of heaven mm. uh, because it was all I really cared about. The ranch at the time, there was no internet. There were no uh, televisions. There were no radios and no newspapers. Mm. So it was very insular. So we just did horses. We got up with horses, we did horses, we went to bed with horses. It was just with horses, there was nothing else. Kind of sounds like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a hard working dream. We yes. worked very hard and, you know, it took its toll on uh, some people. But um, to me, it was I was prepared to do it. Mm. So at the end of that time, again, I had to make decisions. So during the course of that time, I graduated the foundation program. I'd been fortunate enough to be involved. Um, and a couple of what they call Mid-America cult starting courses, which is just starting young horses, yep. uh, a difficult horse course, and they put me through this thing called an instructor course. Mm. So I came back to New Zealand as a pro instructor, and they just let me loose on the world. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I did for nearly the next 20 years. Um, wow. And the, the great thing about that for me was initially it was the foundation program and the learning I got from the program. Yeah. And from that, of course. So initially it was that. Part of that, I realized while I was an apprentice, is there were seven apprentices, of which I was the least talented and least experienced, which was fantastic. Mm. It was just fantastic. Because I could ask anybody, and they would know more than me. Yeah. So I was in the ideal environment for me. Yes, well, that's what they say, isn't it, to be... Um... The, the quote-unquote um, dumbest person in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It certainly works for me. Perfect. <laughs> so, and that's what I really, I think that's probably why I stuck out so long, is there was such a good team of good people wanting to do good things. Mm. Uh, my colleagues, colleagues within that organisation I could ask them for help. I could work with them. We could share ideas. And we did that for years. You know, I've taught in Australia for years. I've taught in England for the last 18 years. Um, so I get to rub shoulders with people who are doing this full-time, for a living, professionally. Some have taken the route of just training horses. Some have taken the route of just teaching people. Others, like myself, do a bit of both. Mm. And, uh, and what I learned is it doesn't matter who you are. I can learn something from you because you know something I don't. Yes. And if I can just find out what that is, I might be able to learn something from 
So it, that that's really what kept me in that game for so long is people. Yeah. Um, and that was that was great for me. And then you know, it do, did also open the world up a little bit. So to date, I've actually taught in 18 different countries. I, I set a goal that I wanted to teach in 20 different countries. Um, oh. Why 20 different countries? No particular reason. There won't be a gold watch at the end of it. I just thought it sounded like a good thing to do because in the pursuit of trying to teach in 20 different countries, I'm probably going to end up somewhere I haven't been before, learning something I didn't know, yeah. having experiences I otherwise wouldn't have. And those have always been very beneficial for me. Definitely. So do you have those last two um, countries planned? Well, all being well, next year I'll be in Poland and Austria for the first time. Wow. Um, I've almost been in other countries before. I've almost been Costa Rica. I've almost been in Tanzania. Um, and uh, last year I got invited to the DRC, which uh, for those that don't know, it's the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. Um, the chances of – so I, I had an easy in. I could get in quite easily, but the chances of getting out weren't quite so good. So I declined that one. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, so, so if all goes well, I will have by next year completed my 20 countries, and no doubt I'll have some other places I want to be. Wow, that's incredible. And do you find, like, in different countries the – You'd learn, you'd learn a lot because the culture would be different around how people do things. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the biggest thing, I guess, that I've noticed from going to different countries is fundamentally people who love horses have more similarities than differences. Yes. But each, each horse culture has things that are, this is how our culture does it. Mm. And I've, I've ended up over the years adjusting a lot of what I've done and what I've, what I've uh, found it. You know, whilst I was doing it and it worked, it's given me more tools for my toolbox. Um, when I pony young horses now, I used to pony very much on the what I learned in America and with the Western saddle, of course, and dallying, and to dally and handle a rope and handle a horse and handle a rope and handle a saddle horse while handling a colt and a rope and things like that. Um, and working with the Australian stockmen, uh, that you know they don't do it that way; they have their own way. And actually, there are times and that's actually better. Ah. There, are, there are situations where that will actually be easier on the horse, easier on your saddle horse. You get to preserve your saddle horse a bit more. It's not so physically demanding for them. Yeah. Um, so it, there are situations where, you know, one is better than the other. There wouldn't be a situation where either way would be the best way in every situation. Yeah. But it's just giving me another tool for my toolbox as an example. So Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So I've loved I've loved those opportunities. Yeah, really neat. Um, sorry, I kind of like cut into um, <laughs> to you telling your story as well. My ramble, yes. <laughs> to carry on. <laughs> well, I mean, from there, you know, what I really have been doing for the last uh, just over 20 years now is I've been primarily teaching people four months of the year, three, four months of the year. I'm teaching internationally. Um, so I, I have two summits, and, and for that reason – you know, I've averaged about 42 clinics a year mm. uh, teaching um, and about three to five months a year training horses. I've, I've kind of taken a backwards step from training horses these last few years, but it was sort of three, four, five, even six months a year. Um, and it's gave me opportunities. I'd go over to Australia every May, go to Queensland and start young horses there, a mixture of domestic horses and station horses that we 
well, they're a little feral, let's just say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the contrast to that was starting horses in the UK where they were the polar opposite of feral. Um, and then, you know, starting horses in South Africa, starting horses in, in America. And sometimes expectations are a little different in the various cultures. As to what we're going to get. Uh, yes, well, I've just got a little person who's decided he's going to join in on our discussion. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see how we go for um, okay. if he's going. He might just have the input from the younger generation. Exactly, he, he's all about learning. <laughs> um, gosh, I've lost my train of thought just there. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be really interesting seeing what um, different people expect in different cultures and um, and kind of how you have to do. You, would you have to adapt to to meet those needs in different places? Yes, I mean, just as the horses themselves, they they adapt to the various conditions they they live in and the different expectations they they're given, um, yeah. and it, it really is quite amazing. You know, I, I've been in Australia, and certainly around the, the stockman competitions, like the Manchester River competition, where everybody just walks around. The kids walk around cracking stock whips. Ah. I remember, I remember saying to my partner Ruth, I remember saying, "Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah, last time we were in Burley, uh, which is a, a big eventing sporting event. Yeah. Um, can you imagine if I was cracking a stock whip walking around the horses there? How that would go down? <laughs> Not very so, well. You wouldn't be very well liked. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be well received. But you realise that people's expectations create uh, a culture and what is normal around horses. So in, in that particular environment, in that part of Australia, it was very normal to be able to crack a stock whip around a horse and have yeah. zero in fact, impact on the horse. Uh, it was just considered normal. In America, it was very normal to be able to swing a rope off a horse. In fact, if you couldn't, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with your horse. Yeah. So the expectations uh, were very different. So knowing what people are going to use the horse for, what the function of the horse is going to be, obviously means all right, we might have to put a little more emphasis in this direction compared to that direction yeah. um, and get to where they become very accepting in these these particular areas because this is actually what their life is going to be and it's how they, they're going to be. Mm. So you, you have to learn to flex your style. The, the makeup of the horse is the same. Their learning process is the same. It's yeah. just you might, um, you, you might just have that end goal in mind and the better your understanding of that end goal, the better you can prepare the horse for it really. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's really interesting. And so I guess that kind of takes us through to today and, and um, what you're doing now. Yeah, so to modern day, I mean, the, the biggest change, I guess, for myself personally is I have realised a dream of having my own centre. So we now have Brumby Farm here in Te um, in the Waikato. So we've only been here for five years, but it's uh, just short of 20 acres. That was the, the goal. We didn't quite make it, but just short of 20-acre property, yep. which we came in. And when we bought it, it was basically a small, unprofitable dairy support unit. So we took over and we bought it, and we spent a lot of money changing the facilities to a point now where we have a small, unprofitable equestrian facility. <laughs> um, which has, of course, been the dream. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the equestrian dream. <laughs> so, um, so we have you know, Brumby Farm Horsemanship Centre. We work from. It means I'm no longer as much of a gypsy. Mm. Uh, we teach now a, pretty close to fifty percent of our courses every year are here, 
at the centre where where we don't have to leave home, we sleep in our own beds, mm. and and that's something you appreciate after you know, not doing that for nearly two decades. Yeah. Um, and the the beauty for me is I actually end up spending more time with my own horses. Uh, a lot of people will see some of the demonstrations I do, and they'll say, "Oh, you must spend so much time with your horses." And the reality is the opposite. The reality is I don't really spend enough time with them and give them a good enough chance. Yes. Um, so a lot of my horses, they they gain the years quicker than they gain the education. But mm. being able to be here, you know, we're able to do this. And and to, so at the moment we're three, about three to four months a year. We still go overseas, but primarily in what you might call the off-season here. Yeah. Um, I've taken a bit of a step back from starting young horses and I now have an apprentice who's very, very keen, uh, Lisa Early, who's very keen on starting young horses. She was with me as a working student where I pretty much for a summer just made sure she worked very, very hard and, <laughs> I just, and she proved she could. Yeah, and, good. Uh, at the end of it, I asked her, you know, are you still interested in starting young horses? She was. I hadn't put her off. <laughs> so she got to see some of the reality of, of what it is to have this life, and she still wanted to do it. So last summer we arranged for young horses for her. So she came back. She had her own groups of young horses that she started, and I supervised her, and I talked her through, and um, and she actually ended up doing a pretty good job, which was was lovely. So it's you know there are different ways to go about learning and different ways to go about developing and there are ways probably a bit quicker and maybe a bit more expensive um for her a lot of those weren't an option yeah so her option she took was to basically work her ass off mm. and um and put up with me telling her what to do <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm developing her and she's back for her third year this summer we'll see her beginning of january she'll be starting young horses so oh, my okay. focus with young horses now is more teaching her and developing her so that she can have a career on that. If she, if she doesn't become sensible enough not to, uh, <laughs> developing her. While our clinics have actually become more and more popular, we've, we're actually doing more clinics now around New Zealand. For yeah. a while I was, um, you know, world famous in England and uh, hardly known at all in New Zealand. Ah. And it's just in, in recent years it seems to be all of a sudden I, now people know who I am. Yeah. So, so we're doing that, and the interesting thing about that is I've never really got tired of teaching. I've, I've always loved to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big extrovert. I'm not somebody who um, who seeks the company of groups of people. But when I get around people that love horses, it's very different. It's a very different environment for me, yeah. and I really enjoy that. So, so uh, I've always enjoyed that. And so for me, it's kind of cool that we're doing a bit more of that now and uh, sharing a little more, and, and we get to have people here. So so that's really what we're doing. That is um, awesome. And you mentioned some of those demonstrations. I guess in, in recent times I've gone away from doing the demonstrations in people's backyards and the AMP shows where I might get three people attending. Yeah. Uh, two of them that were lost. <laughs> and, uh, but and they enjoyed it anyway. They <laughs> were surprised at what they saw. Yeah. Um, and more and more now, it's, it's being asked to be involved in some of the larger shows, mm. uh, like you mentioned, Equal Days and Equitana and, and things like that, and, and kind of showcasing what I do. And um, so I guess a lot of people see that and they know me for liberty and maybe bridless riding. Yes. Um, but the reality is is quite different to that. 
So for me, um, Liberty and Brightness Riding are part of the foundation that we do with our horses. I take the liberty a little bit further now because primarily I enjoy it Mm. and I don't see anything wrong with doing something you enjoy. (laughs) And uh, secondly, I actually learned something from it because there's a – there was um, many, many years where of the four areas I studied with horses, which was horses with a halter and lead rope on, horses at liberty, horses ridden on a loose rein, horses ridden with a concentrated rein, a finesse that made up the Pirelli programs. That was my indoctrination into natural horsemanship. Yeah. My weak areas were liberty and finesse, liberty and, and riding with collection. Right. My weak areas. So I've kind of sought out how could I – how could I be better in those areas? So I sought out people who were better than me, which actually wasn't very difficult for um, at the time. And I've, I've really put some time and effort into it, and I found I have to work more and more with the horse if I'm at liberty. Yes. So from that point of view, I've gained a greater understanding of horses in general by doing a lot of the liberty work. Uh, and with my own horses, whilst I've made a lot of mistakes with them and, and things could have been a lot better, um, they are more connected as a result. Mm. And the, the cues are more subtle as a result, and mentally we have a better connection. So, you know, I'm really thankful for them for putting up with me during all that learning process. <laughs> the learning. The learning process. Well, I guess uh, with the liberty, it's not something that you can – you can't force that to happen. You really can't. And, you know, I've tried. You can't force that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, – you know, it, it's something you really have to eventually just step back and say, it's me, I've got to make an adjustment in me and yep. what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And mm. then as I make that adjustment and the horses make their adjustment, accordingly I, I get to that point where I go, oh, my goodness, you mean it's all me? <laughs> Everything I do is, is just a result of, you know, the result that you're giving me is a result of me. So, uh Humbling experience, actually. Yes, yeah, that really is, isn't it? You kind of have to look, look within. I, um, I'm going to be patient for a little while longer. Um, I had a question that is kind of along that those lines, so I'll I'll just bring it up now. Okay. Um, what are you talking about? I kind of had this. I was going to. Like, I, for quite a while, I've been putting off doing podcasts because I thought, I can't possibly do that with a baby. But then I thought, screw it. I'm just going to do them anyway because <laughs> everyone everyone loves babies. So. <laughs> so I'm sure people won't be offended by a little bit of baby noise in the background. <laughs> a world without babies would be a sad world. <laughs> yeah, be impossible. <laughs> right, now... Hopefully, I am bringing up the right question. Okay, so um, Katie asked, um, I'm interested in his philosophy towards his style of liberty training. What is the drive slash training style for his horses to be with him? I haven't watched his clinics, um, just his demos and him riding a working equitation course at Equidays. I enjoyed seeing his obvious care for his lovely horse that he didn't push too far. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, good question. I, I think 
over the years, my style has changed a little bit, has uh, flexed a little bit as I feel I have a better understanding. And that's, that's something that it bothered me in the beginning that I would have to say, actually, the way I've been doing it isn't as good as I could have been. You know, now I'm going to do it a bit differently. And that bothered me because I was supposed to know. Yes. But now I kind of get, you know, realistically, if I'm not changing things, I'm, I'm just not learning. And if I'm learning and not changing things, that's, I can't do that. You know, yeah. I can't do that. So I, I've changed things up a little bit. Um, primarily, Liberty is going to be a byproduct of my foundation, of the foundation we do. So there's going to be a lot of how I interact with the horse. And I have a philosophy that this is how I see the truth. The truth I see is that horse training is fundamentally flawed. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, and I could say that as a professional trainer, is because everybody is a horse trainer. Anytime any human being interacts with a horse, you either teach them something new or reinforce something they already knew. Yeah. So sending a horse to a trainer sets horse up and absolutely the horse can learn some good things and, and gain some good skills and habits, uh, good behaviors. But then every interaction, you are either taking away from those behaviors or adding to them. So it mm. can be a positive or a negative thing given the environment and the situation that you want. So you find in, in starting horses, uh, this is absolutely true, that uh, after being with me, three weeks after being home, they resemble more their owner than they do me, actually. Yeah. So I'm very conscious of every interaction. Every interaction I have with my horse is telling him something about me and about the way we should be together. Mm. So I, I treat every interaction um, with utmost importance. So to me, it doesn't matter if I'm in an arena with people watching me or from at home. The interaction is equally as important. Whether I'm, and I generally not do this, I've done it recently, but I generally don't. But if if I'm in a sporting environment where somebody's judging me or there's going to be a certificate or a ribbon or whatever those things are, um, that interaction there is no more important than the interaction at home. And if I can get in the habit of having quality interaction with everything I do with that horse, from the moment he becomes aware of me to the moment I put the halter on, to the moment I ask something more complicated of, to our cooling down time, if if everything has quality in it, then how can I not do something with quality? Whereas if I try and only bring out quality in the show reader or when people are watching, then that's going to be very forced. Oh, totally. If anything, when I'm on display, I'm doing less than I do at home. Less as far as I'm not trying to bring out the magic. I'm just trying to do what we do and not make it too difficult. Mm. Um, And I don't know if I've even answered the question correctly there, to be fair, but uh, when it comes to the liberty, it really is a byproduct of that. And I want to get to a situation where my horses feel like they can leave me at any time, yep. but they don't want it. Mm-hmm. And I've, I often, and I still do have an imbalance of that, and it's like a pendulum will swing one way or the other. So sometimes I'll have the imbalance where they know they can leave me at any time and they just leave. Yep. And other times I'll have the imbalance where they want to be with me because they feel they can't leave. And there's ah. a, it creates, as, as a friend of mine calls it, a proximity tension where they're with you but they're not relaxed with you. So they're, yes. it's not really what I want either. It's a bit forced. So yep. that's the pendulum swinging too far the other way. Mm-hmm. I want a balance of you can leave anytime you want, but, I, but if you don't want to, that's lovely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's really what I what I'm trying to gain with my horses. Um, and and then, you know, as I've gone along, I think I've gotten more and more of that. Mm. Um, I use a combination of both positive and negative reinforcement. Uh, now, without going into a big, long, complex conversation about the <laughs> scientific terminology of that, I'm sure we can Google that and get the scientific terminology so people understand the, yes. the context and the and the, under, the the meaning of that. It's not the lame-term person's uh, words, but um, I use a combination of those two things. Awesome. I'm, I'm always trying to think, what does this horse need? What does it need? What does it want? What does it desire? Past the basic learning of the mechanical movements, there's a bit more than that. Those are important, obviously. They need to know how to move and the way I want them to move. I want to move the body and I need to be safe. But beyond that, there's a little bit more. How do they feel about it? How do they feel about doing that? And if they feel good about it, they're more apt to want to be with me. If I've done a bit too much and they don't feel good about it, I can get them to do it, but they don't really want to be there. So it's it's always a balance for me. It's always a balance to try to create that. Yeah, you can leave anytime you want, Mm -hmm. but we want you to want to be here. Yeah, it's interesting. While you were talking about that, um, I was thinking of uh, the other day I was working with – a big horse who had had a float loading accident and so he knows how to he knows the skills needed for um getting onto a float and everything um so it wasn't a matter of teaching him how to but it was kind of like the mental aspect of it and uh, when you were saying about um you know if they need to leave then then that's okay as well and so that was sort of the approach that I took with uh, this horse is that you know if he felt that he needed to leave he he had every right <laughs> to do so and um, as it turned out by having that approach he uh, um, over maybe half an hour um, decided that he much preferred being with me inside the float than um, than away from me through having that freedom of choice yeah Absolutely. And I think that brings out the willingness. Yes. Um, I'm very realistic and I've been in situations where I've been pretty close to getting myself killed with horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm pretty realistic about the fact that the number one yeah. thing is to be safe. Uh, yeah. And so I would do what that what it takes. But beyond that, there's more to it than that. And there's, there's an interaction we can have with horses where we can try and find a way. Just, what's the key that unlocks the door to willingness with this horse? And I think what you mentioned there is. Yeah, yeah. Mm, and so I guess that almost is a, a form of liberty in, in a way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Even though we had a, a rope attached. Yeah. So, you know, to me, liberty is the mind frame. You're, you're at liberty to do what you want. Yeah. It's kind of a, a frame of mind. It's, it's kind of thing. You're at liberty to do what you want, but I'd like it if you did this, and I'd like it even more if you wanted to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything else is just feedback. Yeah. So how do how would you typically start with the progression of liberty? I saw you have a um, clinic coming up in the near future for um, for a liberty clinic. I I do, and um, basically in those clinics, and generally I have two groups for only three hours per day. Because to work with a horse at liberty all day long is very mentally taxing. So yeah. it, it helps, I think, and it's mentally taxing for a human mm. also, actually. 
Uh, it helps if they can just have their intensive time and then they can just watch the others. Yeah. And the human can learn without the horse being taxed at all. So what we do there is I try and set up, there's so many different ways to begin with a horse at liberty. And, and I'm not going to say one way is right and one way is wrong. And, you know, and I have different ways that I would begin if I was at home on my own with a particular horse. I would yeah. begin a bit differently. But in starting people off, most people do not have good facilities as far as big old round corrals and things like this, and nor do they really need them. Right. So what I want to do is I want to introduce the idea of what we're going to do, but also the prerequisites we need before we should even begin. Mm-hmm. The things that if we have in place will give you greater chance of success, and greater chance of success means you're safe and you're enjoying it. Yes. So – there's some safety elements. There are some basic prerequisites. Get those in place. If they're good, let's just rock on. Let's, let's go for it. And then I teach people actually how they can use the fundamental uh, equipment of halter and lead rope to create a liberty connection to where when you mm-hmm. take that halter off, the horse doesn't even notice. Yeah. So we can have a safety net simply because we're learning. So as we learn, as we make mistakes, as we're a bit slow in our time and we're a bit incorrect here and there, we can stop the horse from learning the wrong thing, having that reinforced, and we can also get that feedback of, oh, I can see that was happening. I'll make an adjustment. I can see that's happening. I'll make an adjustment. So we can make an adjustment with our own teaching styles and our, as we learn without teaching the horse the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just that's how I like to begin. And I like to begin with draw in mind. And draw is the thing where horses want to come to you. Um, generally speaking, if you have a dog and the dog wants to come to you and it's really hard to send away, at least hard to send away and get to do anything useful, um, a horse is kind of the opposite. They're, it's easier to send a horse away from you, you drive them away. It's actually harder to get them to want to be with you above other things. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's how do I create that draw? And can I do that instantly? The answer is no, I, I can't do that instantly. I have to understand it's a process and there's going to be time involved and sometimes it's going to feel slow, but I'm creating something that could last a lifetime. So to me, it's a very valuable thing to have. It's a, it's a very good thing to have. Yeah. So it's really – I'm going to teach them how to use their halters, their lead ropes, initially, and then, of course, the facility here, we have six different round corrals. We have five 50-foot corrals. We've got one 180-foot corral. You know, we have a lot of options there. We have the arena and different things in the playground. So we can have people playing in these round corrals to test what they've taught online. So it's kind of like the truth test, you know, that that old expression there or that old old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's being modified to other to other similar expressions, but that is the expression. Yes. And um, you know, and that's the thing. So you see that ah, I thought I had this online, but I've just had feedback from my horse that I didn't have what I didn't have. And why is that? Probably because of how we're using it. So it draws our consciousness to how we interact with them on a daily basis. It draws our consciousness to how we use a halter and a libro. And the the very number one thing with teaching liberty and teaching responsibilities at liberty is not to be the person that's going to prevent the mistake. If I if I have a halter and leader on and I'm preventing my horse from making a mistake, he will not be a good liberty horse. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, as soon as I set him loose, he's going to show me where my mistakes were. 
Yeah. What I want to do is allow the mistake, correct it, allow the mistake, correct it, allow the mistake, correct it. Yeah. Pretty quick. He goes, oh, I see. Okay, so you want to do that. Uh, and what happens is he ends up taking responsibility. So we have responsibilities as do they. And mm. then when we test our work, there's not a lot of difference. Mm, yeah. well, shouldn't, should I say there shouldn't be a lot of difference? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's kind of the same as um, when we're doing our, our written work on the buckle. Um, and exactly. It's that exact same um, philosophy, really, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So you're putting the horse in charge of their own basic self, uh, as far as being able to take some responsibility for themselves. I, I don't expect to be able to control my horse's every thought or every movement. I expect them to take control of that. Um, so once they can do that, that frees them up to communicate better with me, and it frees me up to use my aids in a way that guide them to things that are a bit more important. Yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. And, and um as you were saying as well, it's kind of like the way we're haltering our horses or leading our horses. So we're we're practicing liberty at the like the end result in everything we do and every moment we're with those horses. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, every interaction is teaching and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's teaching them the things you want them to know. So we have to be very aware of ourselves. Um, just as just as much as we're aware of our horses. Yeah, that is really cool. Is there anything else that you want to go into with the the progression of um, that work? So um, I guess we where you've developed to, it to nowadays when we see you out in the out in the big arena under the lights. <laughs> yeah, and that's um you know that's an environment that's very hard. As I'm sure you'll appreciate, it's very hard to prepare a horse for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's quite a test, and that you know, that can be a positive thing or a negative thing, depending on how you look at it. I, I tend to look at it more as a positive thing yeah. uh, if the preparation's there. And, and I preach prep preparation. I always preach preparation. We should prepare our horses. Uh, so that gives me an opportunity to, I guess, test my own preparation. Um, in the development of the horse, if I have the draw as my primary uh, and thing of importance, then it becomes the glue that kind of glues the movements together and the tasks to get together. So when you see me out there doing a performance, you'll see me do little things with my horses. They might be close at hand there, and I might ask to go forwards and backwards and side to side and turn and spin and jump this and do that and do these sort of things. In reality, when I'm with them at home, I, I don't put that much demands on. Demands on. Yep. Um, because if if every time they're with me, I'm saying, now you do this, now you do that, now we do this, now we do this, now we do this, now we do this, pretty quick, it's like, well, I think actually being away from you might be better. Yeah. Might be better. So I actually spent a good part of my preparation time, I might start a session by walking around with them for a few minutes, maybe even 10 minutes, which seems like a lifetime. <laughs> um, you know, just walking around. So what I want to have is when you're with me, primarily, that's a neutral, that's a neutral yep. spot. Mm-hmm. So it's a dynamic neutral because we're moving, but it's a neutral spot. So I'll spend more time while you're with me not asking you to do something than I will ask you to do something. Um, and then from time to time, I might ask you to do this and do that and do, do something else. And I, I pretty much break it down there to four fundamental categories. So the categories, firstly, are the thing I try and develop more are a confidence and rapport. 
Yeah. I want my horse to be confident in me, so he's not fearful of me to begin with, but also confident in my tools. Um, I choose to take the approach that I want him to respond primarily to my body language and not my tools. Now, that's different to how some other people do it. It's mm -hmm. not better. It's just different. Um, to do it. If I was doing a lot of horses at once, if I all of a sudden could afford to have a lot of horses, I might do that. Uh, I would probably have to have more of them responding to the maybe the whip or the extended tool or something like that yeah. because my body language, they simply wouldn't see it as easily. So I might have to do that. But, but for now, it's about body language because that's very congruent with everything else I do in every other part of the program. Yeah. So it's very congruent with my riding. It's very congruent with what I do when I'm with them online. And it's just, it just fits into everything. So primarily it's about um, body language. Mm -hmm. So they needn't be scared of me there. So the first part I was talking about there was um, building confidence in the horse and rapport. Yeah. Basically, if your horse hates you, it's going to be hard to do good living with them. <laughs> they so, don't want to be with you. <laughs> so, what you know, what do I have to do here? Do I have to find the itchy spot and, and do that? I'm happy to do that. You know, I'll do that. It doesn't bother me if I'm scratching your butt. It may not make as good a photograph, but, geez, if that makes my horse happy, I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay? Yeah. You can have a bit of that. Um, I just got to find what it is that might help build rapport with that particular horse. And then this, we get into then more functional things like we, you hear a lot in horsemanship circles about yielding the hindquarter. And it is a very important thing from a safety aspect. It's something we do a lot in the beginning. And then, of course, as a horse is developed, you hardly ever do that. But, but as far as liberty goes, I know if I can have the body control of his hindquarters to where he's got forward motion, he's stepping under himself, draw him through, that creates draw. Basic yeah. principle there is... If I can, if the hindquarter goes away, the horse comes back. If the forehand goes away, the horse goes away. They leave. So forehands for standing away, hindquarters is for drawing back to me. So I need to have good control of that hindquarters. Um, and he needs to understand that I think good control of the hindquarters, what that means to, to both of us. And then I get into, um, I find this interesting actually. The next thing I do is something that I was taught as a stick to me which is where I teach the horse to be in a certain position. In my case, I, I prefer right by my shoulder, just just so just behind his ear is right by my shoulder there. Mm -hmm. And I teach him that that's his place to be. That's his place of comfort. That's his place of release. That's where we get to hang out. That's the, the neutral spot. And it can be in motion, the neutral spot. So mm -hmm. I teach him that. I teach him that, and I teach him to come to me and be close to me as a release before I go into what, a lot of people start their liberty with. So this is perhaps where it might look a little different to others. Yeah. Uh, there's a thing that has a variety of names. Monty Roberts called it joiner. Pat Pirelli called it the catching game. Hmm. Uh, as I worked with in the States, call it hooking on, yeah. where you, you round pin the horse and you work them around the round pin and then get them to face up. It's basically, if I can put it in the most yeah. simple of terms, that's basically how it is. Um, there's a little more to it than that, but, mm. but that is the most simple terms. So, so there's that. Now, I personally don't want to start there. And the reason I don't want to start there is because if the horse has no clue where the release is and I start pushing him forwards, it doesn't take too much for that forwards to become flight. Yeah. And when they're in flight, it, it is difficult for them to find a release with the thing that's putting the pressure on them. So it's it's not that it's impossible. It can be done, and I've, geez, I've done it enough, so I mean, it's possible. Um, 
But before I move them, what I want them to do is have an understanding that if you come to me, there's a release. So I am actually the release. Yeah. Without that understanding, you, I see horses get tight and tense and panicked and worried. And, you know, some can work their way through it pretty easy. Others don't. It would be it would be a little bit like me throwing a question at you that you did not know the answer to. And eventually mm. you just end up guessing and guessing and guessing. And soon enough, you'll get the answer. But mm. you didn't know it. You just guessed it. You know, and then next time, if you can remember what that guess was, I guess you'll be okay. Yeah. What I prefer to do is say the answer is three. Now I want you to remember this: the answer is three, the answer is three, the answer is three. Okay, here it is. What's one plus two? Mm-hmm. Three. Yes, got it. Well done. You're going to get that answer a lot quicker. Yes. <laughs> I, I I work that way, um, and I try and work in environments where initially I have control over the environment so that we can develop what we develop, and then gradually move into environments where I don't have control in the environment. Uh, mm. And it might be firstly environments where my horse can get out of reach uh, of me. So it's larger environments, environments that there are things moving other people in and that type of thing. And gradually mm. increase the level of difficulty, I guess, for the, for the horse. Um, but I wanted, where possible, increase the level of difficulty where his level of understanding has matched it. Yeah. So for for me, his level of understanding and ability to respond is what determines how much responsibility he has. Mm. So his responsibility to stay with me is determined by his ability to respond to that. Yeah. And that's how I determine what responsibility means. It's, to me, it's his ability to respond. Yeah. Um, and that is something that's developed through time and good management and you know, getting it wrong a few times mm-hmm. and going, oh, okay, he's telling me I should do that a little differently. Yeah, that, that's kind of how that is. Um, and then I, I'll put isolated things. I might teach a particular movement. So I might, I might teach my horse to turn around, something I used to call a spin mm-hmm. until I was around guys that actually spun the horses properly. And then I went, actually, no, I just turn them around. <laughs> turn them around. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I might teach them a turn around, which is a, you know, such an easy way to lose a horse because that's a real forehand drive. So, real easy way to lose them. So, they have done a lot of draw to even better do that big drive exercise. But what I often do is I'll often do something like that and then relax a moment, do some of that, relax a moment, do some of that, relax a moment. So the mm. thing they link with the high-intensity type of movements is we do it, we relax, do it, we relax, and pretty soon they start to get more and more relaxed within, within what it can be a quite difficult movement. Mm-hmm. So the draw and the stick to me become, well, you stick to me and we'll do this, and then you stick to me and we'll do that, and you stick to me and we'll do that. So... And then we might have to do two or three combinations of things before you can come back and stick to me. And then we might have to just move off here, just spin around a couple of times, come out the other way, split, circle, and then come back. So gradually we piece it together to where it's more of a flow. Mm-hmm. But at any time, I reserve the right just to go, no, stop and come in. Yeah. Um, and if a horse gets lost, as they sometimes do, because I've been communicating with one horse, he mistook that as communicating with him, but he didn't know, so he stands there blinking at me going, I don't actually know what you want. <laughs> but I go, that's okay, let's just reset, start again. Yeah, 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 that's beautiful. I'm loving this. It makes so much sense, and um, you can see how like those exact same principles just fit with every part of our riding, regardless of whether you're doing liberty or your focus is on dressage or cowboy challenge or no matter what it is, it's kind of it's all exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> 
Because one of the key elements to liberty is connection with your horse. Mm. And, it's, and connection is obviously weakened when they're under pressure. Um, and I see people come in and try that sort of environment when they're not very familiar with the environment, and they get a little upset because the horse leaves them, and, and they run, run off. And what I think we need to realise is if he was in a herd of horses, he would still leave. Yes. And then turn around and go, why didn't everybody else leave? <laughs> he, he wouldn't check in to say, are you going to leave? Do you think we should leave? He would just go. Yes. And then it would be a surprise. So it's not a personal thing. If he gets overshadowed, like if, if your cues, your connection gets overshadowed by the environment and he leaves, it's not personal. He just left and then went, why, why didn't you come? Like, I was scared yeah. there. Why aren't you scared? Yes. And then, <laughs> so now, of course, he has to come in back and you know, figure out, well, you weren't scared. Maybe I shouldn't be scared. Mm. Um but it often happens where the environment can, can overshadow. And, and I want to get to a point where my connection is so strong that what it would take for my cues to be overshadowed by the environment is a lot. Yeah. You know, it's a lot. And, and um, there's always going to be something that can probably catch their attention. But, again, it shouldn't you – know, I'm, I'm trying to work towards a situation where it doesn't take long to get their attention back and I can get it back pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, gee, that is awesome. That's um... – kind of like connecting lots of dots in my mind as we speak. It's probably why I'm a little bit quiet because I'm girl having all these ah <laughs> moments. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I started uh, by saying, you know, I don't speak very much. And then I spent uh, about 40 minutes just telling you the history of my uh, <laughs> my introduction to horsemanship. Oh, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm all, all about it. So, But I think um, <laughs> to be mindful of your time and also that my sister's just um, – I've handed the baby over to my sister, so <laughs> before I put her under too much pressure, um, perhaps we could start wrapping things up, and um, and I think we're going to have to do another chat, because I think it turns out that you've got quite a bit to say, <laughs> but we're all about it, so it's cool. Um, so... Let's. I've just got a few quick fire questions. Um, yeah, and we did have a bunch of questions from other people as well, but I think I'm gonna jot those down and maybe we could catch up again and um and do some Q and A type of things perhaps. It would be it would be a pleasure, and that would stop me rambling on. So. <laughs> okay. So. What is your favourite book or video um, for growth? Doesn't have to for be horsey. Can be horsey. Green, green eggs and ham by <laughs> Dr. Zeus. <laughs> There's a pretty good messages in those books. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, best best under one hundred dollar horse item that you bought recently. Best under one hundred dollar horse item: uh, a ticket to Equidays. Oh yeah, cool. I didn't get to go and I'm really, I was having massive FOMO watching everybody and all the updates online. <laughs> it, it, for me, I mean, actually, to be fair, it's been a while since I bought a ticket, but but um, for me, that's you know, an opportunity to learn something. If I learn one thing, I'm a happy boy. You know, yeah. one thing that I can use. So to me, it's it's more about what I put in the brain than, um, than on top of the brain. That's important. Yeah, definitely. What was one thing you took away? From Equidote? Yeah. 
um, that I'll tell you a big thing I took away. There was a, there's a big, big thing I took away. Um, and having studied martial arts in the oh, now, now I'm getting into it. I know I'm getting into it. Um, <laughs> it's totally fine. Martial arts in the in the past, I realised there are lots of different takes on the same theme. Yes. And as I get to rub shoulders with people who are doing similar or same things that I'm doing, and and realise that the public often perceives them as very, very different. They are just highlighting an aspect or an approach that is, you know, it's not that they don't use perhaps some of what I use or I don't use what some of they, they use, but we have different focuses. The, the light shines a little brighter in one area. Yeah. So what I see is uh, being effective with horses is pretty much the same regardless of uniform, what we choose to dress in mm-hmm. and where we tend to, to highlight things. It's just we have to do what is congruent to our nature. Yeah. Um, so having having determined firstly that we are somewhat in the beginning fighting our nature to think differently to work with an animal who has a very different nature to us. So once we get past that, we have to work with our own nature to to do what resonates with us. So I, I go around to these these events and, and I see that gee, you know, nobody's doing anything that differently. Mm. We just have a slightly different focus given the situation. Or, or this particular horse, or this is how I actually feel good about doing what I'm doing, so I take this approach. Does everybody else do that? Yes, to varying degrees, but somebody's highlighted a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, you're you're so right. I really um, noticed that as well. Yeah. Um, okay, who else should we have on this podcast? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, some, somebody I've been trying to spend time with but I've really failed in the last two years, it's very hard to get with, um, uh, Frederick Pignon. Uh, uh, so so probably not the sort of person you can just ring up because I've tried a number of times <laughs> uh, to, to do that. But, um, but that, yeah, that's to me is somebody I would like to uh, uh, speak to a bit. He's got some very interesting things to say. I can imagine. I certainly love you. You didn't put any limits on that, so that was just the the name that came up. Totally. It's kind of cool (laughs) because it sort of broadens um, your way of thinking. So surely there's got to be someone out there that can connect some some things for us and make that happen. (laughs) I think think he's even more private than I am. (laughs) But I say I bet once you get him talking, he can talk as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so if you could teach one thing to people, what would it be? Um, I, I guess I would try not to make that one thing a technique. Yeah. Because the risk of teaching a technique is that we believe that technique is the be-all and end-all and the answer to everything. And I do teach a lot of techniques, that's true. Um, but but I'd, I'd hesitate to teach a single technique. The thing I'd like to teach, if, and it's the thing I'm still studying myself, is how to read a horse mm-hmm. uh, so that we better understand what it is we then need to do and how to apply and what technique might be of use at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, because our podcast is called Working from the Inside Out, what does that mean to you? Well, oof, you see, now you're getting into that real uh, insightful stuff that you <laughs> uh, stammer and stutter about. <laughs> um, what, what it means to me, working from the inside out, you know, when I first got involved in this and I was sitting on the sidelines back in the 90s, so I could say that was last century. <laughs> um, and I heard an instructor say, 
to be a horseman, you have to be mentally, emotionally, and physically fit. And I thought for a moment there, and I said, I'm physically fit. I've always been physically fit. Uh, mentally fit, I guess that means you can figure stuff out. What the hell does emotionally fit mean? Mm. Uh, and I didn't even understand what he was saying. I went, well, we'll take a meatloaf on this one. We're two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> so, um, and it was only in being in, you know, as the years have rolled by that I realized that emotional fitness is the hardest thing. It is the hardest part of it. Yeah. Emotional fitness to me means um, not being scared, not mm. being angry. Two things that are very, very common, usual, and natural responses. So I don't think I'll ever get to a point. I used to think that if I had to get to where I wouldn't get scared, I wouldn't get angry. I think now it's about managing the emotions, yeah. not trying to deny the emotion. Yeah. Um, that I, you know, and do I get frustrated? Yes, usually at myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not being good enough. Mm. But it's, um, but I think it's about managing. So working from the inside out is about managing who we really are. Yeah. You know, once you learn, once you start studying, you realize that we have a very primitive brain. Mm. We are very primitive beings, and uh, we're no, we are different in the brain now than we were 200,000 years ago. So it's not surprising that this very different world we live in. Um, often our brain has us think things and and release the, the sort of chemicals that are not useful for this environment. So we need to learn to. Well, personally, I I need to learn to uh, manage those. So working from the inside out for me is about managing who I really am. Mm. So I can put the best version forwards at that moment to uh, to influence the situation I'm in. I like that. That's really well put. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm not even going to add anything to that. I'm going to leave it there. But where can people find you? Where can to... people find me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, most people now do the social media thing, as you've experienced, because uh, it took 20 minutes for you to get me to press the right button. <laughs> Um, I'm not real good about that, but I have a website, which is very simply russellhiggins.co.nz. My um, my Facebook site, and actually this is the thing I was going to talk about, but I haven't, but never mind, maybe another time, uh, is Russell Higgins Foundation Horsemanship. Awesome. That is my, um, my Facebook site, so we're quite active on that one. We, we make a real effort to get on the calculator and uh, put things on that, and um so that would probably be the best way to uh, awesome. to track us down, I guess, through there. Yeah, cool. And then I see you've got um, clinics coming up, a trip to Africa, I think, as well. We have, we have. So we've got uh, this upcoming, we'll just call this summer for argument. Well, this, this summer, autumn, we've uh, got a pretty big schedule with a lot of clinics. Um, a lot of them at home here, yep. ranging from what we have this weekend, which is introductory clinic, which is just unashamedly starting right at the beginning and setting people up right or as right as we can at this point to set people up. Um, Following that, the very next day, we have Green Horse Experience Week where I'll be starting three horses and I'll have a group of people watching me in the mornings as I'm starting these horses. In the afternoons, they have their own green horses Mm -hmm. that are under saddle but are very green. So we'll be developing those for the next week. And then immediately following that, the weekend, we have a actually a liberty course um and then we we carry on through the summer and we we range from we do trail camps we do uh, arena to trail which is preparing horses and people who aren't yet confident enough to get out in the wide open spaces Mm. and do what i call is the most extreme 
equine sport you could do, which is trail riding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then early next year, we actually have a trail course where we do take people out onto a, a working station and uh, put principles into practice. We have a variety of courses throughout the year. We, we're off to Australia a little bit. And then in May, you're quite right, we're off to, uh, well, we go to South Africa first, and we're going to do a little bit of teaching. But then we're in Botswana, where this is something that, for a, for a teenage boy that um, grew up reading those those uh, Wilbur Smith books about Africa, this is like a real dream come true to, to yeah. be in Botswana, have a seven-night mobile camped safari on horseback where you see just whatever happens to be around. Yeah. And it's fantastic to wow. me. It's, it's like a, it is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's one of those enrich-your-life experiences mm. and once you've done it it kind of is always with you yeah. just for me i'm fortunate this is the third time i've done it so i'm, I'm very fortunate oh, i can uh, imagine it look from the photos i was looking at yesterday it looks like dream stuff <laughs> yeah i mean it is it is been fantastic so uh, and then from there we, we get uh, moving on to the uk we we're teaching in uk and then europe and as you mentioned earlier or as you asked me about i've got my my two new countries both of them are in europe yep um, and then we'll head back to New Zealand and cycle it again. And um, I always enjoy coming back home to New Zealand and mm-hmm. back to my own horses. That's that's a great thing. And mm-hmm. I, I'm very fortunate. I, I live a life where, you know, I enjoy going away and teaching and I enjoy coming back home. Mm-hmm. So I have to sometimes sacrifice one thing I like for another thing I like, which I think is uh, is a great thing. Yeah, I was going to say, how terrible. That just <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining me today, Russell. Uh, I really loved learning more about you and and what you really do, and also the liberty side of things. So, thank you for um, being here today and sharing your time and wisdom. Ellie, it's been a pleasure to uh, to be with you and baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, thank you for having me on. Awesome. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Finesse Equestrian. For free videos and articles, head on over to finesseequestrian.com. You can also find me on Facebook or YouTube under Finesse Equestrian Training or on Instagram under Ali A. O'Brien. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe so you are the first to listen in, to screenshot and share on social media, and rate and leave us a review so you can do your part in helping us to reach more horses and people.